Hey everyone, my guest, Sarah Lubiri, is a full-time employee and part-time art history student at Concordia University. She has been gaming since 1990 and has played the first three Tomb Raider video games among 100 other titles. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, thank you for asking. True or false, you currently own over 500 video games. Yeah, that that is very true. <laughs> What's the exact count, please? Oh, uh, I would say about, no, I, I think it's 536. I would have to look it up. Oh, it's but, 546. Uh, you told 46. me today. So this yep. is, yes, so we don't have any video. So safe to say you're a gamer. Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. Now I've asked you to be part of this project because you did in fact play the first three Tomb Raider games. You are female. So I wanted to get your perspective on all this. This came out in 1996. And I don't know if you if you knew originally, but reading another article, I found out that Lara Croft was actually going to be a a, a Latina named Laura Cruz, but I, Eidos, or you know, which which acquired Core Design, insisted they wanted a more quote unquote UK friendly name. Then they settled on Lady Lara Croft, but originally she was an Olympic level athlete, expert of antiquities, born survivor, but Laura Cruz. Anyway, this became Lara Croft, as we know, archaeologist, adventurer, kind of, I always thought of her as a female Indiana Jones, but I'd like to get your your perspective when, when you played the game, what you thought. I mean, yeah. So when I, when I played these games, I was in my early teens. So it was just nice to have a a female protagonist in a game, right? Beforehand, there wasn't too, too many. Not that there were none, but there were few and far between, right? A lot of female characters were kind of part of larger rosters where you could play it, play as them, but the most of the cast would be predominantly male or they would be kind of relegated to support characters. So yeah, I was super excited to just be able to play a game with a female lead that wasn't, you know, not something like with a princess in it, for example, which is funny considering my first video game was The Little Mermaid. It was it was just something different at the time. And I really it really spoke to me. It was a game that we got at Christmas time. So we kind of played it all together as a family. And it was just it was great. I don't know. Part of it, the appeal too, was the fact that she was British because I, I have a British background. So that was extra nice. I didn't realize that her original character design was meant to be Latina, though. That's actually that's super interesting. I didn't know that. But what did you think of? I think you said it best in your notes to me. But pointy polygons and you know never dressing for the weather. So what, what did you think of that? It, character design wise very obvious that it was eye candy right these games were still made for i think a male audience but they're able to get the appeal of female gamer gamers because you're able to play as a, a female protagonist which again not super common at the time so i think they were trying to get a little bit of best of both worlds where they can appeal to both it worked my brother played it too <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So speaking from the male perspective, so in this article or the book by Adrian Shaw, some people like Maya McCullough argue that based on the way Tomb Raider was marketed, objectification rather than identification more aptly describes the primary male audience's relationship to Lara Croft. But some argue that young boys and men who constitute the majority of Tomb Raider 
players allows them to experiment with wearing a feminine identity. Now, I'm not sure what category I fall into there. Uh, I never played Lara Croft or Tomb Raider the game, but I, I, I know of it. But I do use a lot of female skins when I'm playing my game. So I don't know if that is me experimenting with a feminine identity or something else. I don't know about your brother either. Again, from, from our book, Gaming at the Edge, Adrian Shaw defines identification as a process by which we come to feel an effective connection with a character on the basis of seeing that character as separate and yet a part of us in some way. So you identified with her UK background. Did you identify with her adventurous spirit at all? Absolutely. I mean, I, and I know we had a little bit of a conversation about this before too, that this is not too long after that Relic Hunter with Tia Carrera came out. And I, I love that show, but it was kind of like that same, you know, female Indiana Jones type of vibe that I, I really enjoyed, especially as a teenager, right? That definitely spoke to me at the time. There's something to be said about being able to play as a female avatar. Again, going back to what I kind of mentioned before, it wasn't common. At the time, in the 90s, even before that, right? Like there wasn't too much in the way of female-led games. Well, let's let's and talk about that uh, because we you you actually mentioned this in your notes to me. Okay, so before Lara Croft, there was Miss Pac-Man, but since she wasn't really human, I don't really consider her. Yes, she had a bow in her hair and and nice eyelashes, but that's I mean, not she really had a monogamous relationship with Mister like, with Pac-Man, right? Ms. Yes. Pac-Man, right? There. Yes. But I, I don't. <laughs> but since she wasn't human, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't equate her with you know uh, a living, breathing woman, right? But but you did tell me about was it Seamus Seamus Aaron from Metroid Prime? Yes, from Metroid. Now, now you said something yeah. interesting. So can you just tell us how at the ending there's a big discovery at the end? So I, I found that really interesting. Do you mind telling us what 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 that was? Yeah, so I mean, ultimately, when the game first came out, you didn't know what Samus's gender or sex was, right? You were just a space bounty hunter. And you only really find that out at the end of the game. And later on in Super Metroid, like at this point, you already know as well. And every time she, you get a game over and she dies, you see the suit kind of like blow off of her. And you can see that it's very a, a clearly female, feminine kind of silhouette. But when the first game came out, it really wasn't a factor, right? There wasn't anything that really, it wasn't, you didn't know until later. And I mean, on the one, again, same type of thing, very strong female protagonist in a game, still a super badass bounty hunter, doesn't matter what your gender or sex is, right? But that was so few and far between. So come the 90s, when you have a character like Lara Croft come out and who is fully capable, who is ultimately the main character running her story, jumping around caves, shooting dinosaurs, it's great. And I think it paved the way for a lot of more, more female characters in gaming that weren't just relegated to healers or mages or, you know, a one female character in a roster in when you think of street fighter for example chun li was pretty much the first or, or rather the only female character for a little while and then they brought out cammy and they kind of brought out more female characters 
but there's still clearly more male characters in the in those games. But after Lara Croft came out, like all the Tomb Raider games, you have other games that start coming out, like Fear Fear Effect, which I I believe is also an an Eidos game. There's Dino Crisis. You have the Resident Evil games, which again, you have two protagonists, but one of them is male, one of them is female. You jump back and forwards, right? You don't have to choose between one or the other. You play as both. So I think that definitely, you know, that was a, a big thing in the 90s and it slowly progressed. Is it perfect now? No. But compared to what it was before, yeah, there's been some there's been some changes. And just jumping back a little bit to what I was saying before about having a female avatar, even now, I think about Pokemon, for example, right? First game, you don't have a choice. Second game, you have the choice between choosing a male or female character to represent you. And it's been consistent throughout the rest of the series. And which one do you choose? I always choose the female one, given the choice. Just because I, it's nice to feel like I could see myself as a as this character, right? Again, when I play Pokemon games, if I have the option to customize my character, I'm actually going to try to make it look as much like me as I can. Okay, so they do offer, offer some kind of customization. Not tons, but they definitely do allow you to switch up the clothing, the hair. So anytime... Anytime I have the option to switch the hair color in a game character, it's default going to go green. Okay, which is what you're currently sporting, correct? Well, right now it's a mix of purple and green, but yeah, they don't <laughs> like Pokemon games don't give you that level of customization. So it's either a choice between purple or green. Now, comparing Lara Croft Video Game 96 to the, the current iterations, how do you think? So do you think the way she's portrayed now, you know, less busty? more of a tank top do you prefer this version of lara croft or the one you grew up with i mean this version of lara croft is definitely more realistic in terms of appearance proportions right not this kind of goofy pointy chested short shorts type of thing which again right i think the original character design for lara croft is very telling of the time it's very 90s and I think, like I said, she's she's kind of progressed over the years. Her pants have gotten longer. But in terms of how I feel towards the character now, I think, you know, I've gotten I've gotten older and I've also seen other female characters represented in a way that's not so eye candy. So it's she kind of just fills in with the rest of the female characters or like I don't necessarily think too too much of her now but when I think about original character design like it was a big deal back then and it did matter to me when I was a kid and I have a real big sense of nostalgia when I think of original Lara Croft but I think like I said character design wise like she's evolved she looks like a real person now whereas before it was very cartoonish yes Agreed. Well, thank you for your thoughts on that. Now I'd like to get into Lodology versus Narratology. So which, you know, refers to a very long-standing debate within the field of game studies about the importance of gameplay, Lodology and storytelling, Narratology and video games. And there's a 
quite a heated divide, you know, <laughs> some, some are trying to get a middle ground approach, but so as a, as a Lodologist, okay, so they argue that the essence of video games lies in gameplay, mechanics, players' interaction with the game system, whereas narratologists, on the other hand, you know, advocate for the importance of storytelling and narrative video games. So I'm curious, with all the games you've played and all the titles, can you enjoy both? Do you enjoy both? If if I had to make you choose, would you prefer a story game or one that's just about gameplay and mechanics? What Where, where do you stand on all this? I'm definitely in the middle. Because, first of all, I love JRPGs, right? Japanese role-playing games. So things like Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest. Like, these are big, long games where you're expected to play potentially 60-plus hours. And it's predominantly the story. That doesn't mean that gameplay isn't important. It is still a huge factor, right? If you have this big sprawling story, but the combat system is not fun. It's you're less likely to want to tough it out. But on the other hand, I've played games like Tetris and animal crossing obsessively. <laughs> and, and, street, and street fighter and street fighter and guilty gear. Right. I've hung out in arcades and played those for hours until I ran out of quarters. It's, I think you can absolutely enjoy both types. Do I, I personally I think I do prefer something with a stronger narrative. And I mean I think a lot of people do. There are a lot of games that are coming out that are just visual novels now. So I mean there's still some gameplay aspect to it, but ultimately you're playing a story. And role-playing games are pretty much that's their bread and butter is let's come up with these long really intricate storylines that people get hooked to and they want to continue playing. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've replayed Final Fantasy VII and I've played through it multiple times, start to finish. I know the story, but that story stuck with me so much that I will never get tired of it. And I will always go back to that game because not, and not just for nostalgia purposes, right? I think that's the game that I played that I realized like, ooh, gaming is going to be a thing for me. And I will always go back to that, to that game. That's like tried, tested, and true. And it's, I think that kind of, because that's the game that really got me really started into gaming. Not that the other games weren't good and stuff, but this is the one that I would realize like I'm hooked. And I have, over the years tended to stick to that type of game. I wouldn't say I played it exclusively though, right? Because again, there's games like Street Fighter, you know, or any other fighting games, for example, there, I mean, and something like Animal Crossing, where you're purely playing for the gameplay. There's not really much storyline in Animal Crossing other than trying to make a pretty island. But I had put in over 900 hours into that game. And... I mean, granted, it came out during the pandemic, and I think we all just needed something cozy, and I think that contributed to it, but story-wise, not much there, but you don't realize how much you can enjoy a game like that until you're, like, planting flowers and picking apples and being like, this gameplay is fire. Okay. <laughs> Have you played a <laughs> game recently that, because now I know many games are now successfully integrating both gameplay and narrative elements, so have you 
you know, offhand, have you played anything like that recently of your 546 games where uh, <laughs> it's a perfect combination of, you know, I mean, again, and... right. There, there are certain parts. I still think that role-playing games like final fantasy. So I recently got the pixel remaster collection on switch. So it has the first six final fantasy games in there. So anything from the Nintendo to the Super Nintendo. And I, over the summer, played through one to four. I'm almost at the end of five right now. And the combat system is the gameplay. And it's great. Turn-based combat where I pick and choose and I can create these kind of combos and cast spells where I'm like, oh, I know this enemy's weakness, so I'm going to cast this particular spell with this particular weapon, and it's going to double the damage, right? That is just as important to me when I'm playing a role-playing game. Because, again, if the story's great, like, wonderful, I, I love a good story, but I still need good gameplay to kind of make sure I don't quit after a certain point. Because there are some really good narratives with some awful gameplay, and you have to decide whether or not you want to tough it out. But... I still stand by, like, Final Fantasy has been great. I'm currently playing Atelier Lulua, which, again, another Japanese role-playing game. I ended up playing, not too long ago, Erudian Chronicles, which is from the makers of Sukoden. More action-based, but still an RPG with a story. So, yeah, I mean, the combat and the, and the narrative are important. So you're definitely... And all of those games have yeah. great combat and a great narrative so you're definitely you do believe a middle ground can be found in this debate absolutely i mean i again right they they both both of these ideologies have merit right but i think a middle ground is important right you that's wonderful that there are games where it's just pure gameplay you don't need a story and i'm gonna keep harping on tetris right because that's the perfect example of that there's no story. It's blocks. But it's so good. But you have other things that, again, right, are just these big epic, epic sprawling tales like Elden Ring, for example. That had a story. And the gameplay, even though it's, you know, kind of got this reputation for being incredibly hard, the the combat system and all of that and the weapon creations and everything like that was was super important too well janet murray writes that the lidology versus narratology bait can never be fully settled because one group of people is defining both sides of it true but i'm like you i believe there there is a middle uh, ground because i i enjoy both fortnite is a non-serious game there is a story it's more of a backstory but i'm not thinking of story when i'm playing it and i enjoy like you resident evil where it's all story, right? I mean, so yes, I, I am on the side of you. Definitely a middle ground approach. Well, all right, Sarah, thank you so much for for joining me in this discussion. I want to thank you very, very much. This was an awesome. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. It was really, it was really fun. I, I love talking about video games. It's a good time. I was Sarah Lubiri, everyone. Thank you. My next guest is Dr. Pippin Barr. He is a video game maker, educator, and critic. He is also an associate professor and current chair in the Department of Design and Computation Arts at Concordia University. Dr. Barr is a prolific maker of video games and has made over 80 games since 2011 and has his own podcast with David Walensky called Game Thing, which is an audio book club about video games. 
His recent book with the MIT Press, The Stuff Games Are Made Of, breaks down game design in terms of computation, graphics, cinema, time, and more. Dr. Barr, how are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I uh, do thank you, you know, for taking the time and agreeing to be part of my ENGL255 project. So thank you very much. <laughs> now, I did a bit of reading on you. I hope you don't mind. Since I've asked you to talk about narratology, you know, lidology versus narratology, I was looking at an article from 2011 that you did for mm. hyper hyperallergic or hyperallergic. Yeah, I guess that's how you pronounce it. And uh, the reporter asked you, you know, it was a discussion about video games as art. And he asked you your thoughts. And you equated it to the Lidology versus Narratology debate. So not bad, huh? I did some homework. Okay. <laughs> but I'd just like to get your thoughts on that, if if I could. If you're for Lidology, Narratology, middle ground, or you don't think any of it's important, really. Well, I think I started my PhD back in 2003, I think, or 2004. Uh, and that was really, uh, so I was reading game studies when the ludology, narratology stuff was was kind of happening. Um, and so at the time, it seemed very pressing. And, you know, the people involved were very passionate about what they were talking about. It, it felt like there were stakes. So, you know, I met some of these people at conferences. I read their papers. I, you know, tried to think about this myself. But I think probably for almost everybody with with time, I think that the debate kind of dissolves a little bit as people, you know, realize that it's often that they're arguing against a, a straw man kind of situation that, you know, both of these things are in games to different degrees depending on the game and that it is useful to focus on one or the other. That just gives you a kind of academic focus and something to think about and uh, and point your brain at, really, really arguing about which one is more important or which one games really are, I don't think it's proved to be especially um, fruitful. And that's okay. Well, Janet Murray writes that the debate can never fully be settled because, quote, one group of people is defining both sides of it, unquote. Now, I was just curious, I'm assuming you, a very prolific maker of games, has you know, has played games other than your own games. So, and you probably enjoy, you know, one game that has say focuses on gameplay and mechanics, you know, the player's interaction, but you've, uh, you can probably totally enjoy a game that has some good nar narration as well. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. The game I'm kind of obsessed with right now, I mean, I guess you could say it's a combination, but it's narrative focused. It's called Kevin, 1997 to 2077, and it's uh, purely a game about telling a story. It's literally a written out story on a giant JPEG, as far as I can, <laughs> as far as I can understand the way it's constructed. But the language that it's written in is not immediately intelligible, and you're you're spending all of your time trying to understand how it's written. But really, the activity is just is just reading a story um, as much as anything else. So yeah, I love a story driven game. I think. Often, I, like for me, the, the stories in a lot of the mainstream games are not necessarily super fascinating in terms of the written narrative. But I think also, you know, one of the big points that really emerged from the narratology, ludology discussions was the ways in which storytelling takes place in games outside of more traditional, you know, cinematic techniques where 
people say words or a narrator kind of intones important sentences, but more the idea of environmental storytelling, the idea of procedural storytelling, the idea of a player creating a story through their actions rather than necessarily being told what's happening beat by beat. And you mentioned that when you're getting your PhD, which would have been around 2002, 2003, this this debate was, I guess, more in the news, so to speak. But now, would you agree that many games now today successfully integrate both gameplay and narrative elements to create a compelling experiences? I mean, I guess so. I, it's an interesting question. The question of success probably depends on the, the player, right? Like, I know plenty of people are very satisfied with the way that say, a contemporary AAA game handles narrative in these sort of very, I would say, traditional ways. So, you know, I'm playing one of the Spider-Man games now. I forget what it's called. Some remastered version for the PC that came out last year. And it has a really, really straightforward video game storytelling thing where there's a cutscene. I swing around the city. Somebody calls me on the phone and delivers a bit of narrative. I, you know, grab some random trinkets and then another cutscene, etc. And like, I think that that's fine. Uh, But to me, that kind of storytelling isn't really super well engaged with the idea of of game design. So I wouldn't say it's well integrated. It's kind of choppy. Uh, But it is clearly a much much harder job to to fully integrate narrative and gameplay. I think that's, you know, that's why not everybody is doing it all the time. I took a look at your book on Amazon and, uh, you know, I read the, uh, the, the blurb attached to it on the book jacket. And it says bar shows how every single aspect of a game, whether it is code graphics interface or even time itself can be designed with and related to the player experience. You've designed over 80 games, as we said. Now, do you, are some of these games that you've designed have a focus on on narrative would you say or or no i mean i think this is kind of getting at what we were talking about just before which is it depends a little bit on what you mean by narrative um i wouldn't say that i've made a large number of games that focus on traditional storytelling techniques like i've made a couple i've, I've made a game in the form of uh, kind of concrete poetry telling the story of a closed down nuclear waste site uh, and I've made a game about being the kicker on an American football team uh, with words in both cases. And and maybe those kind of, you know, cue to the idea of, well, a, a narrative is a series of, of words uh, presented to the player in some way um, such that they perceive the overall story. But most of the games I make are more about about the experience more than being told what's going on. And I, and I do think, you know, the, the game I think I'm most well-known for, for better or worse, is a game I made back in 2011 called The Artist is Present, where the entire objective is you go to a museum and you stand in a queue for between two to five or six hours um, so that you can sit in a chair. And, you know, on the face of it, that doesn't seem like a narrative experience, but of course, you know, time spent in a game world is time spent effectively spinning a narrative, a story around what you're doing, why you're there, who these other people are, what you're feeling and and so on. And I think if you have that kind of more flexible understanding of what a narrative might be, and this is where a lot of the the narrative stuff came from, is that people didn't have a flexible definition of, of narrative and storytelling. 
Uh, but if you do, then all kinds of experiences can be framed up as, as forms of stories that are being constructed through play rather than being handed over to the player with, I think, you know, the important addendum to that, that the designer is still shaping the experience that the player has and the, the, possibil the possibilities that they can interact with the design space that exists for them to construct their story from. So there's there's still a huge amount of influence from the designer in that situation. Um, it's just more of a sort of second-order storytelling uh, proposition. Yes, and in, in the game you mentioned, The Artist is Present, I, I read up on it, and I, I can't believe that this, just so yours was a digital version of Marina Abramovich's performance, which she did, where basically people would stare into her eyes in silence, correct? Mm -hmm, that's right. Yeah, I even yeah. got to work with her a little later on. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and she did this for about eight hours a day for three months. And I read about your game where when when the player was attempting it, if I guess if you didn't move enough or the cursor, then they would lose their place in the queue. Was that right? Yeah, that's right. If the queue advances and you've gone off to make a sandwich or something, uh, <laughs> then the people behind you will just move past you and push you out of the queue because you're uh, you know, you're not serious about the experience. Okay. Yeah, I, I read a few articles on that. So that was, uh, that, that's pretty incredible. Very nice. So I should say the, the, the other thing that I think that is nice about that game and one of the things that I got a lot of positive feedback about is that the museum itself uh, works on the same hours as the museum, the, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. So it, the museum can simply be closed when you try to play the game. Uh, and, you know, it's another kind of storytelling thing, right? It's, I think that these are the ways that games can come, come towards storytelling in ways that only games can, because there are these dynamic systems that can be reactive to, to the world we live in, to time, to, to the player's input and so forth. So the kinds of stories that can be told are, uh, you know, they're different. They're not necessarily better, but, uh, they're, they're experiences worth having. Agreed. Are you ready to move on to identification? Sure, go ahead. We weren't assigned in the book, but we were assigned a chapter from uh, Adrian Shaw's book, Gaming at the Edge, where she defines identification as a process by which we come to feel an effective connection with a character on the basis of seeing that character as separate and yet a part of us in some way. So I was just curious, of all the games you played, have you personally ever identified with a character? Oh, that's uh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I'm sure that the answer is yes in the kind of the short term and maybe the the less romantic sense of, well, you know, you're, you're playing a game and you understand that you are controlling that person and that you're kind of responsible for their actions and so forth. And, and so that's a form of identification roughly in the sense, I guess, that, that Shaw is putting forth. Like, I guess I identify with being Peter Parker slash Spider-Man because... I run up a wall and I make Spider-Man do his incredibly awkward swan dives onto rooftops and make Peter move around in a research lab. That's identification. I understand the relationship that I have there. Do I feel a sort of a deeper, more romantic or more emotional sense of identification with characters? Much more rarely, right, simply because the vast majority of, of video game characters are not people who I, I necessarily connect with on a personal level. But one thing that does stand out to me, and I, like, I still think about it over the years, is in the 
the first Red Dead Redemption, you were playing as a guy, what's he called? John Marston or something along those lines. And it's one of those incredibly long games as, as are popular. It's whatever, 100 hours long, let's say. And I played it for a long time because it, it, was, <laughs> it was at a time of my life when I could do such things. And there's a sequence quite late in the game where you've, you've spent all of this time riding your horse around, shooting bandits, being a bandit, like whatever, like cowboy stuff. And I think to that extent, it's not the form of identification I was experiencing was not particularly profound. It's like, I'm a guy, I'm shooting other guys, etc. repeat, repeat. But there's a moment towards the end of the game where you ride your horse into a town for the first time. You've been sort of in the wild west, so to speak, riding on sand and grass. And you ride into a town for the first time and there are cobblestones in the town. And for the first time, you hear the sound of your horse's hooves on cobblestones. And that was a moment where I did feel a kind of profound sense of identification with the game character because it was this very real moment of the character and, and myself realizing that his time was kind of up and that the culture and the society that surrounded him and was going to eventually kind of engulf him was, was not his way and not his culture. Uh, his horse didn't belong on those streets uh, making those sounds. And I found that to be kind of a beautiful moment. A little tricky to say that it was sort of worth the 60 hours of gameplay that led up to it, but perhaps it was just for that one moment of kind of very poignant fellow feeling with a character from a video game. I'm just curious, of, of all the games you've made and designed, have you ever gotten feedback about them? Do you get feedback? And if so, has anyone ever written to tell you about that they've identified with it in some way, a facet of it? Yeah, absolutely, actually. And it, it kind of, there were probably other examples, but a, a striking thing that I experienced working with Marina Abramovich was uh, that I kind of got access to her fans, I guess. So I made the artist as present just because I wanted to, uh, but a, a couple of years later, she got in touch and wanted to collaborate on some some things. And I I made this game called the Digital Marina Abramovich Institute, which was based on this, this building and this institute she was going to create in Hudson, New York, uh, which didn't actually come to pass, but I, I did make the digital version of it. And it was a, it was a place where you would, you would start off with a little character and that character would just be randomly selected for you, I should say. So it could be a, it could be a man, it could be a woman. It could, it could be a non-gender specific person for that matter. The skin tone was randomly selected. The hairstyle was randomly selected and so forth. And this would be your avatar, which you would think would kind of like push away the idea of identification to some extent because it's so arbitrary. But you would go through all of these experiences of slow walking, sitting with crystals, doing that staring thing uh, that Marina Abramovich did. All of these exercises that Marina Abramovich had come up with um, and in the last room, after you've done all of these things that took about an hour of real time, you were allowed to write some feedback inside the game and it would be sent to me and to Marina to read, to get some sense of what had happened. And when I would read that feedback from people, particularly, I think, from people who were longtime fans of Abramovich and her methods and her approach to life um, and art, people were very, very moved by the experiences that they had in there uh, this, despite the fact it was this very low resolution game, very simple, 
uh, they invested a huge amount of emotional energy into the character that they played in that world. They really tried to not just watch the screen and see what the character was doing, but to really feel that they themselves were doing it and subsequently found it to be, you know, cathartic or therapeutic or beautiful in ways that I hadn't really even imagined when I made the game. And I guess this, this is another piece of the identification puzzle, right, is that a game can do some amount of work to encourage that to happen, uh, but a player does far more work and, and, and can bring far more profound emotions and readiness to engage into the game from the outside rather than it, it kind of being foisted upon them by the game's design. My next guest is a native of Seattle, Washington, and has been gaming since 1999. He has played everything from Halo, GoldenEye 007, to Call of Duty, to Fortnite, to name but a few. We are recording this interview on November 11th, which is Veterans Day in the United States and Remembrance Day in Canada. And Krasnog is a Marine veteran. Krasnog, thank you for your service, sir. How are you today? I'm doing well, Greg. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for joining me and helping me out with my ENGL 255 creative project. I guess I should tell the listeners how I know Krasnog. I knew him as a mod, a very, very hilarious, funny mod. <laughs> For another streamer now now he streams on twitch himself love this guy i'm so happy he agreed to to say yes all right so let's kick it off with a bit of the lodology versus narratology debate as you remember lodologists argue that mechanics player interaction and gameplay is essential to enjoying video games while narratologists counter that the narrative and the way the story is told is the key to properly enjoying video games do you stand on one side or are you a middle ground approach guy I find myself in, I believe I'm in the middle ground approach. I believe the two can complement each other um, when game developers, um, you know, can strike the right balance. And I think when they do strike the right balance, I think that's what's a key ingredient of a successful game. And for example, you and I both play Fortnite. You know, when we're in Endgame, none of us are thinking of the narrative, correct? No, not unless like you, it's a Jonesy skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not wondering about the zero point or anything. You're just trying to stay alive, right? So no. But um, but but you and I both played games where where there is a great story. Like I also played GoldenEye too, right? And there's a, there's a lot of cutscenes in that in that game, and you know I enjoyed Resident Evil, but I I believe like you, I can I can enjoy both, right? one or the other mm -hmm. is fine by me. I don't think you have to choose one or the other, right? Yeah, I think that, yeah, you can choose one or the other. I mean, Tetris and Pong are amazing games. There's no story and they're fun. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's kind of funny you mention it. When it comes to Fortnite, I, I'm a big fan of the story offline, <laughs> like you said. But when I'm playing the game, the story does not matter uh, at all. It's a very interesting story. There's actually a fan base out there right now that are a little upset. There's been a lack of a story this season, and I'm one of those. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to playing the game, it's just fragging and jumping on that island and running around trying to be in the last survivor. You're not thinking about the storyline at all. Well, exactly. Um, and and no one does the, like, I look forward to the end of season events when they have them, these live events, because then you, then you do see the story unfold in front of you, right? You must yeah. enjoy that as well. Yeah, and it's um and coincidentally, um, you know, Call of Duty's franchise, Modern Warfare 3 just came out. And I have zero interest in playing it for the multiplayer. But I do totally plan to download it so I can play the storyline. Cause I've always liked their storyline. So I actually plan to play it. Will we will we be seeing us on your Twitch stream? Yeah, potentially. Okay. 
Great. Well, since you brought up Call, Call of Duty, you know, we'll get into uh, identification. So identification is comes with an as and with identifying as refers to identifying as a member of a specific group and identifying with refers to identify with an experience or facet of identity. So would you say you identify as a member of a specific group? I do. Yeah. When I got out of high school, I served in the Marine Corps. So I definitely identify with being a veteran, with being military, with being a Marine. Not just a Marine, but I was I served in the infantry. So I was a rifleman. And during my time, well, I won't go into the history, my love of history as well, and how that plays in the Call of Duty. But yeah, I definitely do identify with being a Marine and the soldier life, as, as you would say, that gets portrayed in the Call of Duty franchise games. Would you say that be honest i've seen gameplay i've never played it would you say that ex-soldiers or current soldiers were consulted in making these games is it somewhat accurate oh absolutely it's definitely accurate and it's accurate but a call of duty does a really good job of keeping it a a video game and the only way i can give a contrast to that is when i played PUBG. I'm actually not a fan of PUBG, which is also a very realistic battle game. PUBG, I actually found a little bit too realistic where I found myself. Really? Really? Okay. Yeah. Just the, even the the gunfire sounds, just the way the sounds are in the game. I found myself flinching during fights and I was like, I can't even play this game. I'm going back to Call of Duty or Fortnite. Okay, yeah, so, so PUBG was so so realistic that you couldn't, you maybe identified with it too much and couldn't enjoy it? That's correct, yeah. Wow, okay. All right, I've never actually seen gameplay at PUBG, to believe it or not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a great game. It's just a little too realistic for me. And Well, you know, I don't, I mean, you don't have to go into your, your, your love of history, but as I understand it, didn't some Call of Duties take place in World War One or World War Two? Yeah, World War II. Um, okay, and- so, so so since you're a history buff, though, you, ident- you identified with, with that that I'm imagining, right? Like Absolutely. And I've always been a big fan of history, especially World War II history. Krasnog, actually, my, my handle that I go by is actually a town in, prominent town, but a town in Russia. Oh, is it? Um, yeah. And okay. you know, I, was, I was reading a history book. I was creating my, my first character avatar and i had to come up with a character name and i i was reading a world war ii history book and i was the character was in this town called krasnogorsk and i was like oh, okay krasnog that's, that's, that's a cool where name. you got it i i thought yeah. you ran i thought you ran your name through the, the wu-tang clan name generator and that's what came out <laughs> okay okay yeah wow. Um, wow. but when the call of duty franchise first came out it was call of duty world war ii and i you know being a history buff being a marine it was one of my favorite games that I've ever played. I've played all the subsequent games, you know, the versions that have come out. But like the next version, I would say my second favorite was Call of Duty World at War, which was kind of set back in World War II. Okay, interesting. And now since, you know, dealing, talking about I, I, identity, we weren't assigned the whole the whole book, but there was a chapter two of this, of this book where Adrian Shaw, there's a chapter called, Does Anyone Really Identify with Lara Croft? So since you played the first Tomb Raider in 1996, which I guess at its time, the game was revolutionary for its mechanics. And I had a female gamer on uh, earlier and she gave us her thoughts. So I'm just wondering as a, as a male gamer, 
Did you consider, did you identify at all with Lara Croft and the fact that maybe because she was a female Indiana Jones and she was adventurous? I mean, I, I always like, I didn't play the first Tomb Raider, but I did identify with her adventurous spirit. So was there anything about it that you enjoyed about the game? I did. Um, I definitely identified with that explorative spirit that Laura had. The lone explorer? Yes, like, I am. And I'm I'm known even in Fortnite to be a solo grinder. Yes. Solos. Me too. Yeah. And so, you know, give me a game where it's just me exploring the world, and figuring my way out and, you know, overcoming the challenges put forth before you in the video game. And the storyline for Tomb Raider, you know, they really, you kind of, you had a good comparison to that whole Indiana Jones, you know, searching for the treasure, uh, you against the world. Definitely something I identified with and made that game enjoyable and subsequent versions of the game as well. Well, yeah, strictly speaking as a, if I could put on my Lodologist hat for a bit, I watched uh, a lot of gameplay on YouTube of the of Tomb Raider from 96. And I was impressed and very surprised to see that it had uh, mantling and sliding. And for gosh sakes, mantling and sliding didn't come to Fortnite until about, <laughs> about a year and a half ago. So I'm like, what? <laughs> like, why, why, right. why did this take so long for Fortnite to incorporate mantling when they had it in 96? <laughs> okay. I never played, but I just I, I just wanted to get your 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 thoughts on that, you know, because the chapter does ask, does anyone really? I mean, sure, pointy polygons aside, and Lara never dressing for the weather, uh, you know, it, as you you've probably noticed in the latest version of Lara, she's toned down, right? She's um she's more of a uh, well, you know, the even the picture of the the covers of the of the box of the video games that they they come in, the first one she's staring at you intently, and the second one she's kind of holding herself. She's got a bow. She's wearing a tank top. You know, she's slimmed down. So, do you think that now the the character, I guess, is more reasonably uh, could be identified with female gamers and male gamers. What, what do you think about that? I don't think so. She definitely has more. Um, and yeah. I don't know whether this is because of the the movie franchise with Angelina Jolie um, portraying her, but she definitely has more of a, they try to make her sexier and whether, you know, from a, a human perspective, that makes her more resonating male or female um, when playing her, yeah, I could see how that would definitely have an impact on on the human psyche. I still, you know, even in Fortnite, you can play as different skins. Yes, I'm, I'm uh, glad you I'm glad you brought that up because you know, in our pre-interview or the information I asked of you, I was just curious. Like, do you play with female or, or, or male? And your your answer wasn't what I thought. You you chose to run female skins because you thought the hitbox was smaller uh, initially, right? I did. I did. Okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't to leer at, it was basically because you thought that <laughs> the female skin was thinner. So, yeah. uh, but was that proven to be true? Because I, I swear, no. I swear this thing is 50, 50 divided. I'm seeing a lot of arguments in forum groups about this topic. Yeah. So, there's no, no there's no have an answer? hit box. There's not. Okay. No. <laughs> Because everyone says no, you don't ever play with the Hulk because man, the Hulk get hit from five miles away. So, so this uh, is yeah, not right. so this is not true. So, uh, so Crash Test Dummy and Hulk have the same hitbox. Is that what you're saying? Same hitbox. Same okay. Hit box. Okay. Well, what does this say about me? I I, I usually rock the. 
toy trooper. Now the toy trooper comes in male and female. For some reason, I bought the female toy trooper. Don't know why. It's not like, you know, you sure your first guess was, well, well, sure, Greg, the female has bosoms. Yes, but it's third person shooter. So you only see the back of the character, yeah. right? So from, yeah. the, from the back, the male and the female trooper are the same. Yet I'm just, I'm just wondering if by choosing that, if I'm, if it enables me to identify more as a, uh, as a female or female gamer, I'm just curious. Like I, I, I actually like the female skins. I enjoy how, the, how they're rendered. So, so right now I say when you're playing Fortnite, so do you exclusively choose a uh, male skins now, or just you happen to put it on rotate, uh, like you rotate your skins. Right. Well, historically I, I used male skins and, um, as you mentioned, I, I switched over to using female because I thought it was a smaller hitbox. Now, this day and age, I run female skins primarily because it takes up less. Their skins are smaller visually, so it takes up less real estate on the screen, too, just so I can fit in with all the other cool streamers that are running female skins. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay. um, I, I do see a lot of Chun-Li's from Street Fighter. There, there. are a lot I don't of Chun-Li's. Okay. There are a lot of Chun-Li's. <laughs> so many um, Chun-Li's. So like even Toy Trooper, you use Toy Trooper as an example. Like yes. I ran, I used to run the male version of Toy Trooper. And when the female came out, I was like, oh, I got to get her now because I'm going to run female. And so I actually run her sometimes. Yeah. And it's interesting, but it, you know, it's, I don't identify specifically because they're female skins, but I do prefer using the female skins now. Well, to be honest, I, I I bought the Toy Trooper skin because it's a pay-to-win skin. Like, it's perfectly camouflaged. So if you're in a yes. jungle area. But yet, I still bought the Quite female one and, and not the male one, though. So <laughs> very interesting. So I guess that's it, Krasna. You answered all my questions, sir. Okay. Thank you so much.